ETF Prime is hosted by investment advisors of the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF Store is not affiliated with ETF.com or any of its affiliates. ETF.com's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF.com of the value of any ETF Store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. I have a fantastic show this week. Joining me will be Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect. And I'm trying something a little bit different. Uh, I do have some of my usual questions on things that are right in Wes's wheelhouse. Uh, I want to talk about this rotation into value stocks, the momentum trade fading a bit recently. I have some questions about Alpha Architect's white label ETF business, which is really taking off. However, I have also sourced some questions from Twitter. And so Wes and I are going to have some fun just batting around a bunch of different topics. And if you're not familiar with Alpha Architect, they currently offer five ETFs focused on value and momentum. Uh, but again, they are ramping up that white label ETF business as well. And honestly, I find Wes to be one of the smartest and most down to earth people in the ETF space. So really looking forward to that conversation. Should be a lot of fun. Also joining me this week, is the individual behind one of the most successful ETF launches over the past two plus years. I'll be joined by Nancy Davis, founder and chief investment officer at Quadratic Capital Management. Her interest rate volatility and inflation hedge ETF, ticker IVOL, it's already exceeded $2.5 billion invested. It just launched in May of 2019. And the timing here is perfect just given the growing concerns around inflation right now. So we'll talk about what Ival does, why it's having success, and then I'll get Nancy's thoughts on inflation and the current market environment. Now, to start this week, I have ETF.com's Drew Voros on the line with me from California. The first quarter was a record-setting one for ETFs. Absolutely blew away past records. It was also, of course, a wild time in the markets. You may have seen this. I think most people know I can't help myself on Twitter sometimes. I sent out this tweet over the weekend with my quote-unquote quarterly recap. This wasn't serious. This was a meme. Uh, but I had four pictures. The Capital Storming, Roaring Kitty with a GameStop Saga, Helicopter Money with a Stimulus, and then uh, Bill Wang with the uh, Archegos blow-up. And I didn't even include the Suez Canal getting blocked, which several people kindly pointed out to me. But all of that happened in the first quarter, which is hard to believe, especially the capital storming. That seems like ages ago. But Drew and I are going to talk about all of that and what happened in ETFs right now. Time now for our weekly chat with the experts at ETF.com, the world's leading independent authority on ETFs. I think we're seeing a different way of ETFs being launched. The real kicker was governance, selling a private data. They really let down their customers repeatedly. Drew, thanks for joining me this week. My pleasure, Nate. All right, so let's first talk about these record ETF flows in the first quarter. Absolutely obliterated the prior quarterly record. And I thought, I'll just open this up to you. Give us some highlights, things that stood out to you, and then we can go from there. Sure. I mean, the, the, whole, the whole quarter has been a monster. We saw $65 billion in January of new assets going to U.S. listed ETFs, $88 billion in February. Uh, in 90 billion uh, in March, uh, 245 billion in three months. That used to be a good year, not very long ago, uh, for the total haul for the year. Um, and, and I think what we're seeing too is just a, a huge influx into um, equity, both U.S. and international, consists of 200 billion of that 245 billion. Um, so there's believers in the stock market, there's believers in the ETF market, and we're certainly seeing it uh, in demand that does not seem to quit. 
Um, and, and to top that off in the quarter, we saw two of the biggest launches ever uh, with the social media ETF buzz, B-U-Z-Z, um, coming out uh, with $250 million on its first or second and first, first week of trading. It was up to $350 million. And, of course, we just saw ARK uh, launch its space ETF, A-R-K, X, and it too came out very strong with a couple hundred million off the bat and is standing around 350 million um, trading uh, a lot. Uh, so it's just not seen money sitting there. So we've just seen some very interesting things, both in big, big, big picture and little picture. But I will say this you talked about all these flashpoints in the market. You know, the people that are really pouring the money into the ETF market, you look at the funds that are up there, it's VOO, Vanguard S&P 500 ETF, the iShares Core uh, S&P 500 ETF IVV, uh, IEMG, the International Fund. You know, those are big index um, passive funds that really don't care about the little market blowups because they're long-term holdings with a long-term horizon. And that's what index investing is, is to um, you know, ride out these little market uh, waves that come and go, but really don't affect the, the course of the ship. Yeah, I think more than anything, that's what stood out to me in the first quarter, because I, I do think about everything that impacted the markets during the first quarter, the capital storming, GameStop, stimulus checks going out, uh, the Suez Canal blockage, the Archegos blow up. I think we could probably add in the inflation boogeyman, right, and, and, and rising mm-hmm. interest rates. We had this rotation into value stocks, uh, tech stock leadership uh, sort of faltering. But then you look up the S&P 500 had a 6% plus gain for the quarter. It, it just, with everything that went on, it didn't really feel like that. But but also you look into ETF flows and here we are with nearly $250 billion in inflows for the quarter. That puts us on pace for a trillion dollars annually. The, the prior record annually is $476 billion back in, in 2017. It's just amazing. And the other thing that's interesting is, uh, if you recall, just a couple of weeks ago, um, there was people were sweating a little bit. I think we had at least a 10% correction. Uh, the spiking yields were pushing, were pushing down uh, the, the growth funds that we had seen um, move, ARC funds, for instance. Um, and now, frankly, over the last uh, week or so, there's been a real strong reversal there. Uh, and the other thing, if you look at the flows, people were buying the dip. Um, and the dip, uh, I think QQQ had one of its best uh, runs in the last few weeks in terms of um, new inflows. Um, and here was, you know, that sector that was essentially getting beaten down. So investors are buying dips and they're using ETFs to do it. And if you just look at these flows, the flows increased throughout the year despite the volatility in the market and despite the leaders in tech um, falling by the wayside and having energy suddenly be the best performing sector, which no one is buying, by the way. You mentioned ARK Invest. I know as much as we talk about ARK, I still think we have to spend at least a few minutes on the quarter that they had. So you mm-hmm. look at their their flagship ETF, the ARK Innovation ETF, ARKK, that actually dropped about 30% peak to trial during the quarter. Uh, but but you look, that thing has pulled in $6.5 billion year to date. And ARK as a whole had, again, a tremendous quarter of inflows. What, what do you make of ARK right now and how they're positioned moving forward? It's all how you want to slice it. If you want to look at the quarter and say, well, they had a bad quarter, look at the year. They're still up 160, 170% on their, on RKK and RKG. Um, they're going, you're going, you're going to hit bumps, right? It doesn't always go in a straight line up. Uh, and I, I think what we've seen, like I mentioned with QQQs, we saw a bite taken there. But again, uh, I think there's belief in these funds that they're not um, flybynight, dot com places that aren't making any money. Um, they got overvalued. They've been corrected, but people keep buying them, and we're seeing the flows in ETFs. Um, and I also looked at RKKK uh, this morning. I saw that they're, the trading volume there's 1.7 billion a day. I mean, that's just an incredible number for an ETF, uh, and just shows you how much that is being used now. And it's just a main tool in the investor uh, toolbox. Well, I mentioned that pullback in ARKK. Some of their other ETFs had fairly decent drawdowns as well. But you look, all eight ARK ETFs have year-to-date inflows, and, and that totals mm-hmm. over $16 billion. You mentioned the ARK Space Exploration and Innovation ETF, ticker ARKX, which we talked about last week. That thing already has like a half a billion dollars in assets. I mean, it took in $281 million on its first day. Sure. So they're coming out with a new product that's, again, warmly received, despite the 
hand-wringing over, you know, Kathy Wood's you know, star starting to fade. Um, but, but people, I, I think, see, um, and you're able to see with the ARC funds, it's, transparency is the key there. Very happy to tell you what's in their funds, tell you what their trading thoughts are. So I think people are warming up to that kind of service. It is active management that we've always waited to come uh, to the ETF world, and here it comes in a different vehicle than iShares or, um, or American Century. Um, so I think there's a whole different wave going on here. I think you'd expect that in the ETF industry. I think you would expect the more innovative uh, issuers and businesses in the space than having traditional Wall Street convert, which they have been so slow to do, uh, has allowed the door to open for somebody like Kathy Wood. In looking at individual ETF flows during the first quarter, something that stood out to me, um, I, I saw the Spider Gold ETF, GLD, that actually had outflows of $7.5 billion during the quarter. It was the second biggest outflow loser behind only LQD, the iShares corporate bond ETF. Of course, I think rising rates hurt both gold and, and bonds. But the, the question I have for you is, I mean, I can't help but look over to Bitcoin in the year it's having. So, of course, Bitcoin is referred to as digital gold, right? But but it's up 100% for the year. Do you make anything of this? Because I don't, I don't want to sound extreme. But I, I feel like maybe gold is sucking uh, wind a little bit because investors are, are preferring Bitcoin as that store of value. I, I think there's something to that for sure. Uh, the other odd thing I've kind of seen lately is um, back in the day, 10 years ago when I first started uh, working with hard assets investor, I followed a lot of the gold bugs and silver bugs. Um, Peter Schiff, for instance, uh, is now a Bitcoin investor. Um, a guy named Dave Morgan, who's one big in the silver coin and silver space, he's a Bitcoin investor. So it's just not in you know consumers. I think the industry is starting to see Bitcoin as a speculative vehicle, which let's admit gold can be seen as that for sure, uh, despite the idea that it's supposed to be this store of value, which clearly it's not been. Um, so I think there is a conversion going on in terms of looking at that alternative investment that is speculative, frankly. Uh, and that's what I think is going on uh, seeping into that old gold bug and in, in, in you know metal world is the idea here's a bitcoin that's being traded uh, very similar to the way you know gold used to be traded as sort of the outlaw kind of vehicle uh, and here's bitcoin and i think the younger uh, investors are much more warm to bitcoin they're much, they're more apt to go buy $300 of bitcoin and coinbase than they are to buy $300 worth of gld yeah that one's just interesting me uh, to me again because I think if you talk to Bitcoin investors, one of their investment thesis is that with all of the stimulus we've had, the, the money printing, that's going to be a tailwind for Bitcoin moving forward. But that's really a case that gold investors like to use as well. But here, again, we have Bitcoin up 100% for the year. We, we have gold not performing well. And then you look at the largest gold ETF with $7.5 billion in, in outflows. It just feels like there's more to the story here. Um, I, I, I think there is, and I think we're going to see that play out <clears throat> over time. I don't think it's going to be something quickly, but I, I certainly think you'll be able to piece this together a lot clearer in about five years. All right. Anything else that you want to recap from the first quarter, whether flows, performance, launches? I'll just give you sort of a catch-all bucket here. Yeah, I kind of like to always look under the radar. Um, and obviously the radar was we had buzz and we had a new ARC fund that really you know gathered all the attention and headlines. Uh, but I know we've talked about this a couple of times, the defined outcome ETF mm -hmm. uh, sector, if you will, in the marketplace. Uh, just recently gone over 100 ETFs in that space. I think it's up to 118 now. Um, some $6 billion into that fund. I think they've only been around about two, three years. Um, and so what, I, what is interesting is that people are using these funds. Um, and they're not keep coming out with them because they're only having 10 or 20 million in them. Um, there's a whole slate of those 100 funds that have more than $100 million and as high as half a billion. Um, and so what they are are sort of a uh, hedge. So you, you cap your upside uh, and you also cap your downside uh, through what is called defined income using flex shares um, to both you know protect yourself, um, but at the same time also giving up a little bit of gain. I think overall, you know, a similar S&P 500 fund is uh, in the defined outcome space is 3% up, whereas the market S&P is 6 But again, you gave up a little bit of that to, to help yourself on the downside. And if you look at the charts, the S&P 500 fell uh, much more than um, the, these buffer funds, but also re recovered quick. 
So it's a nice, smooth ride, thus the buffer idea. Uh, and I think it's just a great tool for financial advisors who want to put people in the market but yet have that sense that, hey, we're at all-time highs here. And again, things do not just keep going up in a straight line. Um, so that protection there, I think, is also peace of mind for advisors, I would think. No, that's a good point. And, you know, I look at that category. I saw last week it has now grown to over $6 billion in assets. There were a bunch of launches last week from Innovator, Pacer, uh, Truemark, right, all in the defined outcome ETF category. And I think to, right. to what you're saying, I, I think given what we have seen in the markets just over the past year, even though obviously markets bounce back strongly from that 34% uh, decline back in March of 2020. I think investors are wanting some predictability. And that's what these defined outcome ETFs can offer, where you do have that upside cap, you have a downside buffer, these are using flex options underneath the hood. And like the innovator, the ones that they launched last, uh, last week, these innovator accelerated ETFs, these actually provide mm -hmm two times exposure to the upside up to a cap, but then single exposure to the downside. There's also international versions of these. Point being that this category really is expanding. And again, I think if investors do want some predictability in terms of what their best case scenario can be and worst case scenario can be more importantly, uh, these certainly offer that ability. But it also speaks to the universality of the ETF structure and what it can offer and democratize uh, to investors. Here is a, a fund that makes total sense. Um, and again, most people have been riding this bull market for a while. So they're up at the top wondering, you know, am I on the froth or am I on a solid wave? Um, so I think that this, again, is, is just something that is in the ETF toolbox, just like we were just speaking about. Um, that now you have these defined outcome incomes. If you want to stay in the market, but you're a little worried about you know the the, the bottom side being at all time highs month after month, um, what a great tool! And I'm I'm sure it's a I'm not saying it's an easy sell, but I'm I'm sure advisors like to offer that at least to the uh, alternative to an S and P 500 if they feel like the client uh, is nervous. Well, Drew, great recap from the first quarter. Let's see if we can get another what quarter of a trillion dollars into ETFs during the uh, the second quarter. But fun chat as always. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Nate. Always a pleasure. That was ETF.com's Drew Voros. My next guest is Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect, who under their total ETF platform, including their ETF white labeling business, they currently offer 12 ETFs with about $1 billion in total assets. And I now have Wes on the line with me from just outside Philadelphia. Wes, always a pleasure. Thanks for taking the time. Hey, Nate. Uh, happy to be here and uh, honored to be invited back again. All right. Well, th this will be fun. I have a few questions for you. And then I actually saw some questions from Twitter, which we'll get to. So we're just going to bounce around on uh, several different topics this week. Um, sure. but, but but first, I did want to ask you about the ETF white labeling business. So I saw some tweets a couple of weeks ago where you were going back and forth with Mike Venuto, who also operates a, a white label provider. And you were discussing how wild the ETF market is right now, that there's a, a ton of demand to enter the ETF space. Can you just talk yeah. about that? What, what, what are you seeing right now? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, Mike as well, they run a title, which is also like an ETF uh, white labeler with, for, the, for your audiences, if they're unaware, that, that means we basically do all the, you know, the back office and monkey work behind the scenes to help people launch ETFs in the marketplace. Um, you know, I don't know where the demand is com coming from specifically. It seems to be coming everywhere. But I know Mike and his team are buried up to their eyeballs. I know we are buried up to our eyeballs. And we're even, when people reach out now, even if they're a highly qualified candidate, we're, we're having to punt them out a little bit just because you know, it's a lot of work to launch an ETF. So I, I don't know. I, th I think it's a mix of, um, at least from our perspective, we're seeing a lot of boutiques that just feel like it's their time to, to come to market. We're seeing a lot of discussions around mutual funds that want to convert, advisors that want to turn their book into a, um, an ETF, uh, hedge funds that may want to move into ETF wrapper. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. 
uh, coming out of the woodwork. It, it's amazing when you mention you know having to punt out some candidates. How are you vetting the ETF ideas that that come to you that you get pitched on? Uh, well, we we are super segmented on our platform where we don't promise distribution or helping you sell the thing. Um, it's just we are a pure operations platform. So if you want to get access to the ETF market very efficiently with a lot of high touch servers to make sure you you have a high chance of success, that's who we're focused on. <clears throat> so that means that. For when we vet people, it's hey, do you have money? Because I don't want risk on our on our ETF platform because I'm one of the trustees and we run our own ETFs on our platform. So do you have operating capital to actually fund this? And then do you have AUM day one that'll be going into this fund? And are you committed to this for the long term? I.e., do you look at this as a you know five ten year business? Or is this just something you're testing out? And in general, we just want to avoid anyone who's bringing risk to the platform, can't fund day one, and or is not really committed to the ETF vehicle. Because as you know, uh, and what I always tell people, my, my first question when they say I want to start ETF is they say, do you really want to enter the insanely competitive, high capex, um, terrible profit margin business known as the ETF? Uh, <laughs> you know, that kind of anti-sell them. And if they say yes, even after that, then I know that, okay, this is someone that probably gets it. They're in for the, you know, the long term and they're going to grind this thing out. So we, we kind of like our own ETFs, we try to anti-sell people. And if you're still interested after we tell you it's a bad idea, well, now you're probably a good segment that we want to deal with. Yeah, there's a reason why Bloomberg's Eric Balchunas calls the ETF space the Terror Dome. <laughs> yes, exa- exactly. Well, um, West, it's a great place to be, but you got to know what you're getting into. Before we move on, one thing I am curious about on the white label side, do you personally vet sort of the underlying investment merit of ideas? Do you care or are the people behind the idea more important? Like, like how does it work just in terms yeah. of the actual investment so, ideas that come to you? Yeah, so, so I, I personally vet every single deal um, across the board. But, but on the white label front, like we obviously have our own investment religion and philosophy that we follow. But on the, on the ETF white label platform, the mission there is not, hey, what does Wes think is a great idea? It's more like how do we offer affordable, efficient access to enter the ETF marketplace? And can we deliver on that promise? So, so we are. I mean, we obviously vet the process just to make sure is it reasonable. Can we operationalize it? But we don't really take a big claim on. Yes, I would put all my own capital in this, or I want it. That, that's more for the operator to communicate to the public. So it's really not. Um, you know, in general, it's less about what I personally think about a strategy, and more can we help this individual get to the marketplace. And is there a market for it, even if I personally want, want to invest my capital in it? Well, I find the white labeling business to be such an interesting gauge for the ETF industry overall. And, and I've said this the last few weeks on the podcast, but here we are 28 years after the first ETF launched. And I feel like momentum is still picking up in ETFs. And I think the white label yeah. ETF business is a clear indication of that. When you look at you yeah. know, what's, what's landing in your lap and some of the other providers yeah. out there, it's unbelievable. Whether you talk about mutual fund to ETF yeah. conversions, right? Or, or SMAs yeah. uh, who, who want to go the ETF route. Yeah. It's just, it, it's unbelievable. Um, okay, Wes, yeah. look, when I, and go I ahead. Get, uh, yeah. One last point yeah. on that day is um, I can tell you just from firsthand experience from being on the phone here, managing this for the past couple of years, is the quality of people coming to market is is getting exponentially better. I mean, it's unbelievable some of the operators that are like typically the people that would be in hedge fund industry, you, you'd probably never even be able to see or talk to these type of folks. And now they want to get in the ETF game, which is awesome for guys like myself and you who are, you know, think ETFs are awesome, but you know, it's just great to see like, like real talent, talent that's super high qualified kind of moving into our space. No question. So it's why exciting. ETFs are called the Silicon Valley of asset management. There, there's a reason for that. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so let's move on to uh, a, a few favorite topics of yours and I'll start with value stocks. So I pulled some data yesterday and so far this year, Russell 1000 value is outperforming Russell 1000 growth by about 10%. And then if you move mm-hmm. down to small caps, 
Russell 2000 value is outperforming Russell 2000 growth by about 16%. And of course, small caps are outperforming overall. Um, I, I, I guess very simply, is this rotation into value stocks real or is it a head fake? Well, I mean, I don't want to jinx it. Uh, <laughs> I'm a tried and true value person. It, 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 at this point, I'm, I'm in this trade for the next 20, 30 years, and no one's convincing me otherwise. Um, but I, I'm not going to say it's real uh, because knowing my luck, the minute I say, oh, here we are, this is when value turns, you know, it's just bad karma. So, so I'm going to just say, hey, own value strategically. Um, think of it as a 20-year investment horizon. And what happens in the short run here is what's going to happen. And I, you know, I can't control the market gods. Okay, I think that's fair. Um, I'll press you a little bit further, though, because I have seen some people talk about, you know, is this a value rally or is this a small cap junk rally? Do you have have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I do have thoughts, but it's not really my opinion. It's just the data. Um, This is certainly a primarily a small rally. And arguably, and that's just because mostly, if you look at the just like micro cap indices versus mega cap indices, but then if you also look at the quality of what is going up, mm-hmm. a lot of it is money losing, you know, low return on asset, low return on equity, junk stocks that happen to also be small, and they all also happen to be cheap on book to market. But just because you're cheap on book to market doesn't necessarily imply you're actually high quality because you can have a lot of book and like tons of negative earnings. And that's basically what you're seeing right now is any, anything that's actually cheap uh, on like actually earning money. And so it's, you know, it's, uh, the fundamentals of the price is cheap and it's quality. It's doing okay, but it's, it's being overshadowed by small junk essentially. Let, let me ask you this in the ETF space. And I don't think this is any surprise at all. Value ETFs are seeing sizable inflows this year. And we're, we're not going to talk about specific ETFs. But one thing I am curious about is you look at, at value maybe starting to turn. What do you think the investor due diligence process should be around selecting value ETFs? Because clearly investors are looking at this space. And I'll combine that with a stat that I actually saw in uh, uh, Barron's over the weekend. There are over 200 ETFs categorized as value by Morningstar. So the question I have is, yeah. what, what, what do you suggest for investors who are trying to filter through this universe? And, and they do want to play a potential, you know, longer term uh, comeback mm-hmm. here in value. Well, I mean, and unfortunately, it goes back to you got to understand the process and avoid marketing. So and I know that's a hard thing for a lot of folks to do. But but in general, Look at, the, look at the process. What is the actual portfolio manager doing? Are they, you know, for example, are they just buying, you know, cheap book-to-market stocks where all those stocks don't even make money? Well, is that really value? I don't know. Um, but we, you may want to consider, like, what are the actual inputs that, that generate the portfolio names? Um, and then, of course, once you've understood the process, the investment philosophy, and what this portfolio is actually trying to achieve, Obviously, you know, the biggest considerations after that would be your fees and your tax efficiency and all all the boring things that, you know, clearly matter for long term investment outcomes. Going back to what we were talking about earlier with with maybe some of the the junkier stocks rallying, if you look at the value ETF universe, are there certain um, screens or, or underlying methodology that investors should look at to avoid a value ETF that's just loaded with a bunch of value traps? Like, like, should there be some sort of quality screen on that? Um, th- that's my opinion that, uh, in general, as a value investor, you want to own cheap stuff, but you also want to own cheap stuff that's relatively high quality. Um, cause a lot of times if you own cheap stuff, well, it's probably cheap for a reason. So I, I would much rather get a good deal at Nordstrom's than, you know, buy some at Walmart that is literally a piece of junk. Cause you know, it is the case that sometimes you get what you pay for. And, you know, in general, I always think as value is you're trying to not get what you pay for. You're trying to get more than what, you know, more than what you're actually having to pay for it. So I'm a big fan of cheap um, and then within cheap stuff, focus on high quality. But, you know, other people have different opinions and clearly just want to review the process of the underlying portfolio and, and see, make sure it's aligned with your philosophy on how to capture the value premium. All right, before we get to these Twitter questions, let me ask you about another topic that's right in your wheelhouse, momentum stocks. And if I look at some of the most popular momentum ETFs, they're all down fairly substantially since mid-February, anywhere between, you know, I don't know, 10, 20%, depending upon the strategy. Any thoughts on on what's been going on here? 
Yeah, I mean, in general, momentum, just like value. I, I mean, it, it, everyone focuses on short-term performance. You got you got to be dedicated to it if you want to take advantage of it. And momentum is one of those things where it, it's arguably you know twenty, thirty percent more volatile even than value. And if you look not back the past two or three months on momentum, but the past year, a lot of these different funds are up a hundred percent. And and when you look even further back into the deep history of of different momentum strategies, which I actually did recently because I was even questioning, you know, God, these momentum things are getting destroyed. This is nothing like momentum funds when momentum is either working uh, or not working like it has been recently. It's actually been working really well overall, but it's had the short term dip. I mean, you can you could see two times these sort of moves up and down. And you shouldn't be that surprised. It's just I think we're so used to a lack of volatility in general that this feels weird or unique. But, again, looking back at the deep history of momentum strategies, what we're seeing right now is totally in line with expectations and totally in line with that investment process. One one thing I've noticed here recently – um, especially with a move down in, in tech stocks and, and tech leadership sort of faltering. I feel like some people conflate growth with momentum. Um, can can, can yeah. you explain why those don't always go hand in hand? We're not going to do a full deep dive here, but just high level. Why why is growth not momentum? Yeah, well, I mean, it's all it all comes down to semantics. So it's, it's how you define it. So in general, momentum is simply defined as price, good, positive price action. So winners, right? Like stocks that are doing really well relative to all the other stocks, whereas growth is sometimes attributed to momentum characteristics, but a lot of times it's tied to expensive stocks, i.e., you know, the P ratio is 100, not 10. Um, So, you know, but just because something is expensive doesn't necessarily mean it has high momentum. And just because something has high momentum doesn't necessarily mean it's expensive. So we like momentum because we think that buying winners is a valid investment hypothesis, but we don't necessarily like buying growth if growth doesn't have momentum and all it is is really expensive. I don't know if that No, I think that makes perfect sense. Um, And actually, on that note, let's let's get to some of these Mm -hmm. Twitter questions that I have, and we can just go rapid fire here. So just give me your Mm -hmm. quick hot take uh, on on each of these. First one I have from you is from – uh, Devin Boss, who, who, full disclosure, is actually an ETF store advisor, but 100% honest, I didn't ask him to post this question. Uh, but, but again, yeah. it does fit into the momentum topic. He's asking for your thoughts on using a fundamental or quality factor overlay on a quant-based momentum fund. Any thoughts on that? I, I like my goods uh, and products in, in factor space pure. So if I'm buying momentum, I just want to buy winners and fundamentals be damned. Um, what what Next happens question. if you put that fundamental overlay on it? Does it just it waters down that it, momentum it, effect? Yeah, it'll water it down and make it look a lot more like value. Oh, it, it depend on how much you add on there. So in general, if if you view your portfolio through the lens of I want to get the maximal diversification, and let's say you already have value as a block in your portfolio, if you add a momentum fund that leans on a lot of like fundamental balance sheet, you know quality or what have you, it's going to more and more act like probably a lot of the exposures you already have in your portfolio, where if you just buy a momentum fund that is pure, you know, off the rails, you know, price action, technical sentiment driven, which obviously has nothing to do with traditional value investing, mechanically, you're going to get a much better diversification benefit and expectation versus one that's kind of a, you know, half pregnant, I guess we'll call it. All right. Another question that also has a momentum tie-in. Uh, this comes from Jay Dilks, who he tweeted. Uh, first of all, he said Alpha Architect has a great suite of products. So uh, congratulations on that. However, he said he had a wish. He's asking if mm-hmm. you can create a monthly dividend-paying ETF that uses value, momentum, and covered calls. So he says there are covered call ETFs, but there's mm-hmm. very little growth potential. Any, any thoughts on that one? Yeah, I, I mean, if I had infinite money, uh, I would launch a lot of, e- lot of ETFs. But <laughs> as you know, these, these things cost uh, you know a couple hundred grand a year to operate. So you know, I w- I would love to do this, but someone would have to post the risk capital or say, hey, I'm I'm going to drop fifty million dollars in this thing. Uh, otherwise, it's just too risky uh, for us as a boutique to you know, to have lose focus and, and have like a thousand products out there. But we're happy to do anything if someone's willing to uh, pay for it and fund it. 
Any quick thoughts just on that strategy itself, value momentum? And, I think and it's calls? reasonable. Yeah, I, I don't know that space that well, but um, I know there, are, like as the author said, that there are there are several covered call strategies out there. Um, and to the extent you have expertise in, in kind of fishing for the right calls, and you're looking at VIX and understanding the uh, applied vol curve, uh, and you overlay that on top of uh, like a fundamental factor strategy on the underlyings, I could definitely see that working. Um, it, it just, yeah, someone would, you know, uh, <laughs> if they presented us with a lot of AUM, we might do that. But it's not something that I'm going to just whip out tomorrow, just given the risk profile of launching a new ETF. All right. Well, there's a, a free ETF idea to a, a prospective ETF issuer out there. Um, okay, yep. okay Wes, next question comes from Bond Lady, uh, who's asking for mm -hmm. your thoughts on controllable. So asset allocation, diversification, rebalance costs, those sorts of things. And I, I guess I'll frame this one for you a little bit by adding, mm -hmm. you know, look, in the market environment we're currently in, do you think investors are putting controllable factors on the back burner? Just because it's been pretty easy to make money no matter what investors have done. So do, do you think mm -hmm. maybe controllable factors are being ignored a little bit right now? Uh, almost certainly, just because humans are humans, and if it's something easy, they just stick to it, and they don't worry about being disciplined and doing the hard things. Um, but of course, you know, brilliance in the basics, which is something we say in the Marine Corps, obviously applies in investing, and a lot of times people lose sight of brilliance in the basics, and they're like, oh, let's just do this because it's so easy, and you know, all this diversification, asset allocation, worry about fees, taxes, and boring stuff. You know, be damned with that. Let's uh, you know, guy, go buy more Bitcoin or whatever. Um, so, so I'm I'm definitely uh, <laughs> a believer in human nature. And when the animal spirits are high and the sentiments are high, people a lot of times uh, you know forget brilliance and the basics. But I think everyone should always, probably every you know three months or six months, go back and say, hey, what is, what are the basics and how are we ensuring that we're staying disciplined and true to our process and the fundamentals. And on that note of the basics, I thought you had a fantastic tweet last week. I think somebody was asking for sort of a, a summary of all the, the Alpha Architect blogs. You guys do a great job with financial education, investing education, and so you have blogs on a wide variety of topics. But somebody was basically mm -hmm. asking you to boil it down. And you said you're too long, you know, you know, didn't read, are number one, minimize fees, taxes, and brain damage. Number two, yep. buy cheap quality. Number three, buy winners. Number four, trend following. Number five, nobody actually knows uh, anything about financial markets. And number six, uh, EMH is interesting but a joke. I, I have to ask you, tell me about that last one. Uh, well, you know, I'll, I'll probably get thrown off the roof uh, tonight uh, <laughs> by Eugene Fama, uh, you know, ninja or something. But, I mean... I don't know how anyone, you know, if we define the EMH efficient market hypothesis as prices always equal fundamentals, i.e. the net present value of all future cash flows, I don't know how anyone can look at a situation like GameStop recently and think on any planet that I've lived on that the EMH actually is right. Like, there's no way prices always equals fundamentals in financial markets. And I think we've seen so many examples of that just even over the past year, but obviously throughout history, I, I've just given up on on that being a, you know, it's, it's a reasonable idea. And I think it's a great hypothesis to have fundamentally because it'll protect you from doing a lot of stupid things. But I also think it can prevent you from taking advantage of a lot of opportunities if you hang on to the EMH almost too religiously. Um, but that's just my personal opinion. And obviously there's a lot of, smart people with Nobel Prizes that probably would uh, not agree with me. Uh, and that's cool. No, but I, I did love that that list. And I think, again, coming back to what you were saying earlier, certainly minimizing fees and, and taxes are extremely yeah. important. And I think if you start yep. with some of those things, which are controllables, you're going to be on yep. the right path overall. Um, okay, before yeah. I let you go, I have a question mm -hmm. of my own, which I have actually sure. floated out on Twitter before, but I'd love to get your take as well, just given that you are an ETF mm -hmm. issuer, you deal with the compliance burden that comes along with that. And so yeah. a few weeks ago, we had Barstool Sports' Dave Portnoy mm -hmm. touting the buzz index. And mm -hmm. I, I feel like that rekindled this conversation around how limited ETF issuers are and educated investors on their products, which which has been a huge sticking point for me for a long time. 
Can you just talk yeah. about this from your perspective? I mean, do you, do you feel hamstrung sure. on providing education for your ETFs? And do you have any suggestions on, on maybe what should change from a regulatory standpoint? You know, the, the issue is, is I understand it from both perspectives. So, so as a boutique, you know, we have, we have to compete and do the same sort of compliance infrastructure that iShares or Vanguard has. Um, and obviously, it takes a lot of resources. So it, in some sense, it puts us at a competitive disadvantage. Um, so that stinks. But on the other hand, I, I perfectly understand why compliance is out there, because I've seen some of the pitch decks. And really, what FINRA and the SEC are trying to prevent is, you know, grandma from getting taken advantage by, you know, large shops that know how to take advantage of people. Um, so, so I do think it's, it's important that we do have strong regulation and, and strong rules. Um, and it's, there's just a trade-off. And yeah, I, I can't communicate as freely as I would like to on some of our ETF things, but there is a process for me to do that, even though it is a pain in the rear. Um, but but and even though that stinks and that that's a cost on us, I do think there would be a cost because the regulators are trying to protect not against people like me. You know, we're not out. You know, have millions of salespeople jamming our stuff down people's throats. But I think those rules are in place to protect people. And, and a lot of asset managers kind of put them in place where that it is the case that they have really highly incentivized sales forces out there that are basically trying to jam a bunch of junk down grandma's throat. Um, so, so I, I, you know, I see the trade-off and, you know, I could complain about it, but I also appreciate more and more over time, you know, compliance and regulation and why it's there. And it just is what it is, unfortunately. Um, and we, we just got to deal with it efficiently and just communicate as, fairly and honestly as we can within the rules. And if, you know, Buzz and Portnoy and all these people want to go break <laughs> the rules, that's cool. But, you know, I don't have enough money to fund the lawyers to defend things like that. So that's not our business. We, we always try to be high and to the right on these things. And if other people want to go crazy, that's fine. That's just not our culture. So, um, you know, teach his own, as they say. All right, Wes, uh, before I let you go, I actually did have one other Twitter question that came through. This is from the sure. Daily Reet Beat, and his question is, how far will the Dallas Cowboys go next year? Oh. Oh, <laughs> you're you're in Philly there. You're in a tough spot living in Philadelphia, and you're a Cowboys I, fan. I know. I know. It's, it's a genetic disease, <laughs> and if I were ever to, to, to disown the Cowboys, my, my dad's family would honestly disown me. Um, so, I, you know, I won't be doing that. I just don't know. I, I'm still reliving the Aikman, you know, Moose, you know, Smith, Irvin, the, the good old days. And in my mind, that, that was only a few years ago. Um, unfortunately, I think it was probably a couple decades ago at this point. So I'm just I'm just living in the past. So I'll continue to do so as far as uh, Cowboys are concerned. I, I don't know. It's, do you like uh, the Dak Prescott signing? I, I mean – is what it is. I, I like it. I just, I honestly think the issue there, like a lot of people do, is in ownership and management. Um, and but hey, you know, if you own the team, I guess technically you can do whatever the heck you want. But it would be nice to see new ownership, kind of some fresh ideas, and um, you know, make America's team America's team again. Nate, you know how it works. <laughs> I agree, and I think you have to tip tip your tip your hat to Jerry Jones. And everything that he built, yeah. especially back in the '90s, but it does seem like maybe his best days uh, are behind him. Uh, I think so, uh, <laughs> but hey, that's just one guy's opinion. Again, there's a lot of smarter people than me out there. Well, well, Wes, always fun connecting. I really appreciate you hopping on the podcast, and I'm sure we'll be in touch here soon. Thank you. Yeah, you got it, Nate. Appreciate it. Talk soon. Bye. That was Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect. My last guest this week, certainly not least, is Nancy Davis, founder and chief investment officer at Quadratic Capital Management, who is behind one of the most successful ETF launches over the past few years, the Quadratic Interest Rate Volatility and Inflation Hedge ETF, ticker symbol IVOL, I-V-O-L. So this launched in May of 2019. 
And it recently crossed over $2.5 billion in assets. And I should note, Nancy herself was named a Barron's inaugural list of the most influential women in finance. And I'm now very pleased to have her joining me via phone from New York. Nancy, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Well, first, congratulations on uh, all the success. I'm not sure if you remember. So you joined me on this podcast shortly after Ival launched. And I actually went back and listened to that conversation. Uh, you talked specifically about wanting to do something unique in the ETF space. You didn't want to launch a, a cookie cutter product. And you talked about Ival as an access vehicle that opens up exposure to an area that might otherwise be difficult for investors to access. And you, you look now, this product is clearly resonating. It's now a top 300 ETF. I show this has been one of the five most successful ETF launches since the beginning of 2019. Um, what has the ride been like the past couple of years? Well, first of all, I definitely remember our podcast. I think it was the second podcast I've ever done in my life. And thank <laughs> you for that great opportunity because it takes a lot of, you know, I feel like it takes a village to build an ETF. You know, it's not a, um, it's it's all the all the legs of the stool and really, especially the ETF industry is so competitive, you know, with with kind of, uh, you know, some very large oligopoly type firms. It's really hard as a smaller issuer, smaller uh, firm to kind of break into the space. But I do think when you have something that's really different, it's uh, it's been it's been helpful to get it, you know, adopted and to see how people can use it as a tool. I, I know you're a very humble person. But did you expect this sort of success or, or has this been a surprise to you? Well, a little bit of both. I, I, I did expect the ETF would be billions. I just thought it would be sooner than it was. <laughs> I didn't think it would take almost two years to get there. I kind of just, you know, I saw it really as a solution for investors and something. To me, it was sort of head scratching the first you know, say it, it took us almost a year to get to 100 million. And the whole time I was just like, why? You know, why is this? So it was, I wouldn't say it's been, you know, an easy road. It's definitely been a lot of work and a lot of learning and, you know, um, definitely a team effort. But, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised that it's uh, where it is. I'm just surprised how long it took to get there. <laughs> so. well, well, let's do this. Let's talk about what Ival holds. And then I want to get into its portfolio application. And we can certainly talk current markets as well. Um, explain how this ETF is constructed. What does this do? So it's an inflation fund. Um, that's the, uh, it's mostly uh, treasuries with inflation protection. They're called TIPS. Um, so that's uh, over 80% of the portfolio is just treasury bonds. And then we enhance the way that we measure inflation. Um, the problem with tips by themselves are twofold. Um, number one, uh, that type of treasury is still long duration. So if you have a higher yield environment, uh, the bonds will mathematically lose money as yields go higher. So that's problem one we are trying to solve. And problem two was the only measure of inflation when you look at the uh, treasuries uh, with inflation protection goes back to one calculation that is done by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which is one index to measure inflation, and that's CPI, the Consumer Price Index. And I guess our big you know, kind of thing is we don't think the only way to measure inflation is just one index. It's almost like if you if you bought equities, but you only had, you know, the Dow Jones and you didn't have the NASDAQ, it's just a index. And so those were kind of the, the two problems we were trying to solve uh, with Ival. And then the third one, which is, I think, really important, definitely something I've been trying to trumpet to investors, is you have to know what you own, especially in fixed income portfolios, because a lot of fixed income portfolios are actually short volatility, and that's because they own mortgages. So in the United States, a U.S. homeowner can prepay their loan whenever they want. It's called uh, prepayment risk or convexity correction, and that's kind of like um, saying, you know, here's a Kleenex or this is a tissue. It's just different words for being short optionality because the U.S. homeowner is long the option, therefore the owner of the financial mortgage is short the option, meaning 
short options equals short ball. And so I think a big problem in many investors' portfolios is with fixed income. They're not don't necessarily want to be short volatility in their fixed income sleeve. And so offering um, a product that is gives exposure to long fixed income volatility, I thought was, you know, a really a really good thing to do for people to provide that access. You mentioned the tips exposure in this ETF. Can you talk about the options on the Treasury yield curve? Just try to boil down exactly what what these are doing. Yeah, so they're they're not um, they're not on the Treasury yield curve. There are a lot of different interest rates. It's really confusing. There's you know. So for LIBOR, Fed funds, policy rate, you know, there, mm-hmm. there are tons and tons of different interest rates just in the United States. So we use, um, and yield curve is just, you know, a, a measure of different interest rates at different periods of time, right? Um, we use the OTC swaps curve for the options exposure, not the treasury curve. Okay. And the reason that we do that is because um, obviously the, uh, the the treasury market is controlled a lot by uh, purchases in the treasury market, where the swaps curve, because we want the spread to widen um, between short and long dated rates, we think it's better for investors to have the swaps market, which is a much bigger market. Um, you know, every corporate in the world, when they issue bonds in U.S. dollars, so whether this is you know Exxon, Disney. Sony, AstraZeneca, any corporate in the world, when they issue dollar-denominated bonds, they hedge their rate risk with the OTC swaps market. So it's a really, really big market, and we see that yield curve as uh, a really, um, it's sometimes referred to the term premium. You know, if you think about what, you know, why would you have different interest rates at different points of time. There are a lot of things that go into term premia, but one of the major um, factors is inflation expectations. And that's what we're trying to capture with this is another measure of inflation expectations that's not linked to that CPI index. So in, in a nutshell, is it fair to say that these options, they'll increase in value um, as the interest rate swap curve steepens? Right. And that could be either the front end following falling or the back end rising. I mean, if we boil it down, is that is that how that works? Yes, it's it's uh, it's also volatility. So um, with fixed income, specifically interest rate volatility goes higher. That's generally good for the options. When it falls, it's generally bad for the options. Um, Maybe just to back it up, like why do we use options in the first place? The reason that we use they're long options, so the fund is long-only um, options. We don't sell options except to close down ones that we already own. Um, and the reason we do that is that inflation is not bounded by zero, right? There is no um, – it's not like buying a stock, you know, where it can only go to zero. Inflation can go negative. Um, inflation is generally a risk-on asset. And so we like using these long options as a way of gaining exposure, but also, so the tips have unlimited downside. They are treasuries, but there's, there's, they're just bonds. The options, the, um, there's never an obligation on the fund above, the, above and beyond the premium that we pay for the options. And then every day they are marked to market. So if we bought an option for you know a dollar yesterday and it appreciated today, and someone bought the fund and it was worth say a dollar and three cents, that dollar and three cents is what it's marked at today. So it's based on the, um, it's kind of I almost you know liken it to a debit card where you pay for something fully. Um, Whereas I'm not a big fan of futures or forwards or swaps. Those are also derivatives, but they're linear derivatives. So they make or lose a dollar in a symmetric way, and you don't really pay for the exposure. Um, you you pay a little bit of margin, or um, you know, I think we we definitely saw that in the headlines recently. The the challenges when you have uh, linear derivatives like swaps, um, you can have losses that are above your investment. So I think it's pretty timely for investors to understand, you know, not all derivatives are the same. Derivatives do have, you know, a, a bad reputation in the industry. And I do think that is for a good reason. Um, you know, many, uh, if you have a, a future forward or swap, it's like a credit card exposure where you don't really pay for something and you get more exposure than, uh, than what you pay for. 
um, and you can make or lose a dollar in a symmetric way. Options are generally more complicated derivatives, um, and it the risk really depends. If you sell an option, uh, the most you can make is a premium that you receive, um, and then you have a, a asymmetric uh, potential loss. If you buy an option, the most you can lose is the premium that you pay, and you have the asymmetric uh, potential gain. So it's not saying you know all investing involves risk. There's nothing that always makes money. But I think with fully funded options to gain exposure to inflation, it's a, it's a nice way, in my opinion, to access that market. And at least, you know, talking in the past, in March um, 2020, when, uh, if you remember, oil was, you know, trading negative and the equity market and credit markets were panicking with the pandemic, this is in 2020, um, Ival actually had positive performance. Uh, during that month, that risk-off month, even though the tips were down during that period. Nancy, a few minutes left. Um, l- let's talk markets. And obviously, inflation has been a hot topic this year, I think, with all of the, the stimulus and with the economy hopefully reopening in, in full and picking up steam here. There are some concerns that we could finally see a meaningful uptick in inflation. And so in advance of that, Interest rates have ticked up uh, fairly substantially. Um, Give us your outlook here. Do you think this specter of inflation is real? Uh, Is it a head fake? Because, you know, if you think back to after the financial crisis in in 08, 09, and all of the stimulus that that, uh, we saw then, I think people thought inflation would really uh, pick up after that, and, and it never really materialized. Where do you think we're at now? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I know there are a lot of people who, especially economists, who will pontificate about what they think will happen in the future. I'm not sure whether, you know, it does seem like kind of the perfect cocktail or alchemy of, you know, between the uh, blue wave, fiscal spending, average inflation targeting, and, uh, you know, all the, and the pandemic, it does seem like a pretty good case if we were going to have inflation. Uh, but I don't know if we're going to have inflation or not. I don't know if we're going to have stagflation. Um, stagflation is also, in my mind, a non-zero probability. That's typically when stocks and bonds sell off together. And um, that is, uh, you know, typically uh, when you have, you know, low growth, high unemployment, and higher prices, which, you know, can come in the form of supply shocks or labor shortages or supply chain disruptions. So I feel like that's also a possibility. I know we do have a couple of endowments who use IVAL within their um, their institutional portfolio for, you know, potentially to uh, uh, for stagflation risk. Um, but it, it's hard to tell what exactly is going to happen. But I think it's one of those things that you know, no one wants to outlive your wealth. And um, inflation is something that I think most people should have exposure to, whether they think it's going to happen or not, <laughs> in my opinion. But um, it's uh, it's hard to say whether whether this time will actually get things going or not. What do you think, Nate? Are you uh, are you in the deflation, inflation, stagflation, or don't know camp like me. I, I, so as I always say on this podcast, my crystal ball is completely broken. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't have a, a very good ability to look into the future. Um, you know, look, I do think the environment has certainly changed. I think that's clear. And you look at the jump that we've had in rates since the beginning of the year. I, I think as an investor, you have to pay attention to that. What I always come back to, and this is cliche, but but I think this fits, is you have to have diversification in your portfolio. The fact is, nobody really has a functioning crystal ball. And so when you're constructing a, a globally diversified portfolio, what do you put in that to accommodate different types of market environments that, that may arise? And, uh, you know, that's where I think, you know, looking at ETFs like IVOL, and you should have core bond holdings, things that are going to react differently, depending upon what happens. That, that's where I land. I know it's kind of a boring answer, but... Um, no, I think it's the same as mine, is you just don't know what's going to happen in the future. And I think people who try to say that they know what's going to happen in the future are not really, you know, how would they know? Exactly. <laughs> so I think I completely agree with you. And, and that's why, and I, I do think diversification is key. You know, there is no, you know, magic unicorn for all investing. And so having a well-diversified portfolio is super important um, for all investors because we just don't know 
what's going to happen, what's going, I mean, nobody could have predicted it. It it almost sounds like a science fiction movie that we're having a global viral pandemic, you know, (laughs) for the last year, you know, nobody knew that was coming. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, no, Nancy, I was going to say, I mean, great reconnecting. Um, really happy for you. Congratulations on all the success. Uh, it, it's always fun to visit. Uh, but thank you for joining me this week. Oh, thanks for having me back. I really appreciate it. That was Nancy Davis, founder and chief investment officer at Quadratic Capital Management. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Nate Geraci, or you can send comments through ETFprime.com. Next week, I'll be joined by Harry Witten, who is head of ETF sales trading at Old Mission Capital. So he's going to explain how his firm interacts with the ETF market. And he'll also cover some recent ETF stories. And then Amrita Nanda Kumar, president of Vident Investment Advisory, is going to discuss their ETF sub-advisory business. Until then, have a great week, everyone.